So over Advent ser- series this year, we have been preaching on, focusing on various choruses that we sing through the Advent season. And so we began um, with Little Town of Bethlehem. We talked about the Magi last week. So this week we're going to talk about the shepherds and the shepherd's story. So we focused on the word destiny on the first week, on worship the second week. Actually, Darren, those two are backwards, aren't they? So we focused on worship the first week and destiny the second week. It doesn't matter. We, today we're going to talk about promise and we're going to talk about the shepherd's story. So my question to you is, how well do you wait? How well do you wait? Now I'm talking about waiting in a physical line. So we've, we know the statistics when it comes to waiting online. We know that the average wait time if you're surfing the internet online is like 0.3 seconds. If the web page doesn't load, like immediately we bounce, we move on. But the question is how long do you wait in line, in a physical line, and how do you wait? Our former youth pastor, Jeff Gates, uh, he always carried a book with him. And he said that wherever he goes to wait, he'd always pull out his book and read. That is how he waited. I was actually challenged by him. I thought that was a pretty cool idea. And I have it on my phone. I have a Kindle on my phone. And I always have books that if I have to wait, I can be distracted. And if you're in lineups and you watch the people around you, you can see how people wait. How many people jump onto Facebook or whatever social media? We have to be distracted because it's so difficult to wait. Waiting. We thrive on instant gratification. Waiting for anything causes anxiety and frustration. And we can tell how some people do the humph and their physical demeanor and the moving. And some people are extremely patient. Some can smile and just enjoy the moment. Where would you think would be some of the most difficult lineups to wait in? How about the ER room? How difficult is it to wait there for a variety of reasons? How about a, a restroom? If you got to go, you got to go, you know, and you got to go now. How about restaurants when the service doesn't come as quickly as you desire? Yeah, how about, how about the lineup at Costco for checkout? How many of you are pros at that now? You know how to walk there. You got your cart. You're scouting it out. You're going, you know, if I zip around that way and go this way, I can catch that line. And as soon as you get there, what happens? The line next to you moves, right? Yeah, airport security checkpoints, traffic jams. How about waiting in a traffic jam when you don't know why you're waiting at a traffic jam? I had an incident a couple years ago coming back from YVR in Vancouver. And coming back, you go over that, whatever that waterway is, that bridge that actually swings. I didn't know that that bridge actually swings. So we're, we're caught. I'm, I'm on the uphill, so I don't know why I'm sitting there and waiting. And I couldn't do anything. I couldn't go backwards, forward. I couldn't do a thing, waiting for 45 minutes. And you don't know why until once you get going and then you see this casual sailboat just taking its time. Don't they know that my time is important? How about Amazon arrivals? 
especially now. How long do we wait before we freak out? When the car in front of you doesn't move when the light turns green. 50 seconds or five seconds? How many of you have driven in Europe? In Europe, I think they hit the horn as soon as the light turns green. Like, I think it's immediate. When we're driving with my son, and he was there a couple years already, so he already knows this. He goes, oh yeah, it's just immediate, like right now. I read on a website that someone said that we average wait 50 seconds before we freak out. I don't know who they pulled. Because <laughs> you think 50 seconds, like how many turns of the light? How long do you wait for people to stop talking in a movie before you shush them? <laughs> do you give them a minute? No, nobody does that. Airport security. How long do you wait in airport security before you start freaking out? Or do you have a choice? Uh, here's one you don't have to answer. Waiting for your spouse to get ready before you freak out. Apparently, we wait 21 minutes. And after 21 minutes, we kind of panic. How about the Starbucks line? Apparently, people will wait an average of seven minutes in a Starbucks line, whether it's a drive-thru or a walk-in. We must love our coffee. Let's love our coffee. According to a survey early in 2023, the maximum amount of time we'd be willing to wait in a physical line for an item or a service we desire is about 11 to 15 minutes. Then I'm going to think about that next time you have to wait. The more valuable the service or the promise, the longer we'll be willing to wait. We will wait longer for a doctor than to talk to a sales clerk. We will stand in line longer to buy an iPad than to buy a toothbrush. Unexplained waits are longer than explained waits. See, we will wait for the skip delivery guy when there's a thunderstorm, but not when the sky is clear. Because we can appreciate why the individual is late. How long do you wait, and how do you wait? Will you wait days, weeks, months, years, generations? In Revelations, 22, verse 7 and verse 12, at the close of the New Testament, we're told this, Behold, I am coming soon. Behold, I am coming soon. Soon is a very relative term in this verse, isn't it? We're 2,000 years in waiting. Are we still waiting? How are we waiting? As we come through Advent, Advent is the season of waiting. What are we waiting for? Are we waiting for a date on a calendar? If we're elementary age, probably. We're probably waiting, depending on our family tradition, whether we open on the 24th or whether we open on the 25th. We're waiting. Advent is anticipation. For those of us who are older, 
Is that what we're waiting for? Is it just that date on the calendar? Or are we anticipating, expecting something else, something greater? I suspect we do. At the time of Jesus' arrival, the average Jew, the average individual would pray a very similar, familiar prayer up to three times a day. In the heart of the Jewish prayer life is known as the Amida. It's often said up to three times a day, and it goes like this. The offspring of your servant David, may you speedily cause to flourish and enhance his pride through your salvation, for we hope for your salvation all day long. Blessed are you, Hashem, who causes the pride of salvation to flourish. Up to three times a day, they will pray, we hope for your salvation all day long. We hope for your salvation all day long. We hope for your salvation all day long. Do we pray like that? You see, they are taught that every day when we pray that prayer, we're expecting it to happen today. Behold, I am coming soon. That is not what they're thinking in their prayer. I don't want to connect that prayer to this verse. But I do want to bring this verse into our context because I think that is our prayer, is it not? Our prayers, behold, I'm coming soon. Could he come this day, today? I don't know about you, but I don't, I'm going to catch myself on this thing. I don't pray like that every day, to be honest with you. In the morning when I get up, I think about today's responsibilities. For example, yesterday morning when I woke up, I thought about yesterday's responsibilities. Right, Barb? We were stressing out. Right, Doreen? Where are you? Yeah. Those of us who are running this thing. Was I thinking about that maybe today Christ would come? It was kind of funny yesterday. Uh, one of the boys that was part of my afternoon adventures program at Bernard last year, his name is Braden. He's not here. Are you here, Braden? No, you're not here today. So I won't embarrass him too much. But as we were talking yesterday, he's in grade six. And as we were talking yesterday, I was inviting him to Christmas Eve service. And he goes, is Jesus going to be there? And I said, well, he could. Uh, I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us when. He's going, oh, well, Jesus is going to come, isn't he? I go, well, yeah, we celebrate his birthday. We remember that. That's what it's about. And he goes, you know, because I'm getting religious, you know. I'm getting religious. And so, is Jesus going to be there? <laughs> and, I, and I chuckle at that because I don't know if he understood how theologically correct he was. <laughs> Behold, I am coming soon. You see, this anticipation for Messiah comes out of Scripture. Uh, Zephaniah 3 verse 8 says, Therefore wait for me, says God, for the day that I rise to, to the prey. For my judgment is to gather nations, that I assemble kingdoms to pour upon them my indignation and all my fierce anger. For all the earth shall be consumed by the fire of my jealousy. Isaiah 30, happy are those who wait for me. Though I tarry, though I linger, happy are those who wait for me. And so everyone, the Jews at that time, would pray that prayer. 
the offspring of your servant David, may he speedily cause to flourish and enhance his pride through your salvation, for we wait for your salvation all day long. I like this quote, because I think this describes how we wait. Desire and fear drive and drag us through life. By them, the possibility of the future makes itself felt even in the present. The possibility even of futures that will not come to be. Perhaps in spite of our efforts, our best efforts and strivings. So much of life is ineffective bustle. So much is disappointed waiting. When we talk about promise today... It's about waiting and bustling. What do we do while we wait? And how much do we scurry and flurry around while we're waiting? Luke chapter 2, verse 30. The story of Simeon and Anna. I wonder why they are not a bigger part of the Christmas story. Because I think their story exemplifies what we're trying to do as we move our way through Advent. Simeon had the privilege of holding the child in his hands and saying, My eyes have beheld, have seen your glory. We're told that both Simeon and Anna every day would come to the temple and go, Maybe today, maybe today's the day. And they would have been aged individuals. It's like imagine every day you come to church, every week you come to church, and you have this one eccentric guy every day going, it's going to be today, it's going to be today. And 20 years, we're going, okay, man, I know, you say that every week, like relax, dude. Anna and Simeon, every day, it could be today. And we're told in Luke chapter 2, one day he just got up and did the ordinary I'm just going to go to worship today, and guess what? It was today. He never stopped praying that prayer. We know we should be praying like that, but we struggle with it. Today I want to talk about the shepherd's story based out of Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 20, the scripture passage that was read read when we lit our candle today. I want to talk about the promise The shepherds, the shepherds watched and waited. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 20. And I want you to kind of keep this in the back of your mind, the promise, the wait, and the bustle. What do we do while we wait? And I want to walk away. I've got three or four points I want to make today. Point number one is the situation. The situation. The political climate mingled with the messianic hope. You see, there were two forces at play at the time of the shepherd's story. And the two forces really are imposed peace and the prayer or the desire for real peace. You see, at the time of Jesus' arrival at the life of the shepherds, there was what's called the Roman peace, the Pax Romana. Caesar Augustus was in control, and his name means revered or exalted one. And he ended a long period of war in the Roman Empire, and he was hailed as a prince of peace, the savior of his world. 
With his reign began the Pax Romana, or the Roman peace. And under his rule, the economy was booming. Rome was being rebuilt more glorious than ever before. And under his rule, um, temples, arenas, public baths, and forums were being built. A systems of roads was built across the empire. Images of the emperor and the Roman gods filled Rome and all the major cities of his empire, proclaiming, Caesar is Lord. And extolling his rule of peace and prosperity. But just beneath the emperor's polished public image, however, was a very dark reality. Augustus brutally murdered any perceived enemies. He achieved peace in the empire by suppressing human rights and liberties. Receiving the benefits of the Roman peace meant submitting to totalitarian rule. And of course, peace was achieved by coercion and oppression is really no peace at all. Luke chapter 2, verse 1. In those days a decree went out from Emperor Augustus that all the world should be registered. The purpose of this census was so that taxes could be collected from all the conquered people of the empire. And somewhere in some back corner, a very pregnant woman named Mary and her fiancé Joseph made that long trek, we feel it's about a 90-mile trek from Nazareth in Galilee to Bethlehem, the city of David, so that Joseph could be registered in his town. Utterly insignificant among the countless subjects of the Roman Empire, Mary and Joseph were poor, weary travelers who couldn't find a suitable place to lodge, far from home, the family who might assist and comfort them and Mary gave birth to her firstborn. On the surface of this story appears that Emperor Augustus is in absolute control, ordering the movements of the people in far-flung corners of the empire. And yet, there are clues that another hand is at work in and through these events. Remember, centuries earlier, Samuel the prophet journeyed to Bethlehem and anointed the shepherd boy David to be the king of Israel even while Saul was in power. And now in the city of David, a child is born to inherit the throne of his father David, his ancestor David, even while Herod, Quirinius, and Augustus appear and claim to be in power. When in reality, something else has taken place. This is the situation. Speedily cause the descendant of David, your servant, to flourish and increase his power by your salvation, for we hope for your salvation every day. And meanwhile, back at the ranch, or maybe more appropriately, back in the back 40, there's a band of ordinary, nameless shepherds doing the night shift. Now these shepherds are recipients of some very bad press. I, was, I knew that there was a lot of writing about who these people were, but I was surprised. I, I, I went through four or five commentaries as I was preparing for this, and a summary of what most commentators will say is this. 
Shepherds stood on the bottom rung of the social ladder. They shared the same lower status as tax collectors and dung sweepers and were officially labeled sinners, a technical term for a class of despised people. Ouch, that hurts. I want to claim to you this morning that that is an unfair characterization of who these shepherds were. And I want to support that with with just three scripture passages. And if you want to take me to task on this, you can if you wish. I do not believe that the shepherds at the time of this story in Luke chapter 2 earned the reputation that a lot of commentators are, are heaving upon them. I think a lot of what their research comes from comes from sources that one was from a source about two or three hundred years before the birth of Christ by a non-Jew who was not living in Jewish lands. He was living in a different, he was Greek. And so his image, I think, is clouded because he had no respect for Jews no matter who they were. The other, a lot of the other commentary about characterizing these shepherds come from writings about two or three hundred years after the time of Christ. I believe these shepherds were simple tradesmen, blue-collar workers, if you want to call them. They were people of the land. They were tasked with herding sheep, with caring for them, with providing for them, with protecting them, with nursing them. They were experts in their field, pardon the pun. And I believe due to the demands of their work, they were unable to spend as much time at home with their families as whatever else the other men were doing in town. And because of the nature of their work, they were not always able to observe all the purification rites that the Pharisees and Sadducees and teachers of the laws would have imposed upon them. They're people of the land. They had dirt under the fingernails. They wore plaid and coveralls. They were working with their hands, and even if they scrub, there's still dirt on your fingernails. Just ask someone who's a tradesman or a mechanic, right? That's part of your, your trade. And I think because of that, they often could have been looked by those more cultured in their society, more educated as, eh, you're just you're just out there. Let me support this with, Two scripture passages very, very quickly. Uh, number one, Psalm 23, I think, gives us a job description of the shepherd. And we know Psalm 23 very, very well. The Lord is my shepherd. He gives me everything I need. And I think just very briefly, a shepherd gives his sheep so that they lack nothing. He takes their sheep to green pastures and to quiet waters and gives them refreshment. And he guides them along safe pathways, provides protection in the dark valleys and protection from evil. And he gives them protection, provision, and compassion. That's my take. I think that's who the shepherds were in Luke chapter 2. They were guys doing their work to the best of their ability because of the type of animal that they were, they were to protect. My second passage very quickly is John chapter 10, verses 1 to 5, when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And Jesus says, you know what a good shepherd looks like. They are among you. You entrust your flocks to them. You have some idea of what the job entails. I think Jesus' illustration is one that they would be familiar with. 
They will know what Jesus is referring to when he says, I'm the good shepherd. I'm the one who lays down my life for my sheep. I protect them. I take care of them. That's who I am. And I think the audience goes, yeah, I know what you're talking about. I can relate to that. So my argument is that the shepherds were not the bottom of the um, social ladder. I believe they were the invisible ones. I believe they're, well, in Scripture, they're not named. We don't know who they are. We don't know how many they are. I believe they're the invisible ones. And I want to support this with another Scripture passage out of 1 Samuel 16. I alluded to it earlier. When Samuel the prophet goes to anoint the next king, do you remember the story when Jesse the dad parades his boys out before Samuel? Who doesn't he parade out before Samuel? The kid. The youngest kid. What do you do with the youngest kid in your family? Send him on the back 40. Take care of the sheep. David, what else can you do? You can't get into trouble. You're not smart enough. You can't do what your brothers are doing. Send him out to the fields. And he almost missed his anointing. Right? Because Samuel goes, these are all the boys you have? And Jesse goes, yeah, well, there's the kid. He's out there. He's just, he's, he's always causing trouble. Maybe it was ADD or ADHD. I don't know. And what does Samuel say? I'm going to wait. Bring the kid. Right? And we know the rest of the story. Invisible. I think the shepherds were guys who just quietly did their job with honor, with respect. And, and they just, they're the ones that are so easy to overlook, to oversee. Because you're working the night shift. So if you're working the night shift, you're coming home and you're sleeping all day. Right? They probably had no social equity. Maybe they had no real influence. My guess is part of the job is they might be introverted type of people. They feel a lot more comfortable around animals than they do maybe around people. And so if they are in the social, well, we've met introverted type people. We know what it's like. We like to be wallflowers. We like to be quiet. I don't want to be upfront and boisterous and all that. And we certainly believe that they were undereducated. But that doesn't mean that they were... Sorry, they were stupid. I mean, a lot of the Psalms that David wrote, how many of those did he write out in the back 40? I said this once to kids, and, and I don't know, don't, don't, I don't know if I might be right or wrong, but when you talk about how David slung the stone into Goliath and how he had such good, accurate aim, I'm wondering how many hours did he spend on the back 40 throwing rocks? at a tree, at a branch, at whatever. Could it be that when he's in the back 40, even there God was preparing him for what he was supposed to do? Invisible. These shepherds, I believe, were real people in real time and space. This event happened on a real day in a real community, and they heard a relevant message. I believe they traveled to a real address I believe they encountered a real child who was born to very real parents receiving the promise of real salvation when they gazed into the face of the Lord's long-awaited Messiah. Shepherds, blue-collar workers simply doing their job, experts in their trade, performing their duties out on the night shift. And nothing happens on the night shift, does it? Right? Nothing takes place. 
Who might be some of the invisible people in our lives? The teenage clerk counter at McDonald's. Just give me my order. Just do your job. Do we spend time getting to know his or her name or care? Your letter carrier, if you still have one. The UPS driver or the FedEx driver. That new hire at your job site. The guy pushing the broom at your school or at your work. The parking lot attendant. The tired and overworked waiter at your local restaurant because you're involved in a deep business meeting. Who else might be some of the invisible people that we encounter on a regular day and we just are so busy doing our thing we often forget that these are people as well. And I think, I believe, that's the situation when the night shift was interrupted. Here's my two points, simply to, for you to remember. The situation, Luke chapter 2, verse 1 to 8. Number one, those who think they are in power are not. Caesar Augustus thought he was in power, but there's something else going on. And maybe in comparison to him, these shepherds have no social equity at all. But they were the first to discover this life-changing message. And then secondly, those who think their prayers remain unanswered, they shall receive their, their answer. Simeon and Anna, how many years did they pray that prayer? Every Jewish person at that time prayed that same prayer up to three times a day. And years can pass. Behold, I'm coming soon. Yes, I know, I know, I know. But man, you know what I got planned for tomorrow? Man, I got this, I got that appointment, I got stuff going on. Do I really expect that Messiah will come tomorrow? Like Braden said, is Jesus going to show up? That's a, that's a very arresting question. The situation. Secondly, the interruption. Oh, I got to jump into hyperdrive. In the middle of the night shift, something happens. I've always been amazed. Simeon and Anna... I think they deserved to receive that first announcement. I think it's unfair to them. They deserve it. They're just humble people, I believe, aged in life, praying that prayer and believing it every day and go, why didn't God go to them first? Why these unknown, unnamed guys in the back 40? You see the Pharisees and the scribes and the teachers of the law, they were investigating the signs of the times. They were reading scripture. We have people doing that today. I'm going to know. I know the secret. I know when. It's going to happen this way. They were studying it. Their, their faces were deep in the books. Meanwhile, you have these average individual guys just doing life when God interrupts the night shift. God shows up. One commentary writes a simple line. I love what he writes. He says, the quiet in the land, not forgotten of God. The quiet in the land, not forgotten of God. These unknown, unnamed, uneducated, no social equity, shepherd guys in the back 40, and God shows up to them first and says, I'm going to answer your prayer. You might even be aware of how you're praying it every day. And the royal birth, the announcement comes to them. 
the shepherds out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks by night. An angel of the Lord pierced them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were afraid. Sore afraid, the King James Version says. They were panicked. I always enjoy how every time the angels show up, the first response from our end is always panic. It's fear. I mean, think about it. You're in the night shift. You're just doing what you don't expect anything to happen. And all of a sudden, all of heaven opens up. That would freak me out too. And the first words were, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. All of this has taken place in real time and real space with real people living real ordinary life. And this is anchored in Luke chapter 2, verse 1, when we start the whole paragraph saying, In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree. This is anchored in history. He issues a decree. He thinks he's in charge, but he's not. And the Messiah arrives in real time, in real space, at a real address to real people. I await him every day. And on that day, for these shepherds, that every day became today. You see, there's nothing about poverty, class, economics, or popularity that prevents anyone from receiving, understanding, and responding to the promise of the good news. The fullness of the gospel goes out to all without prejudice. Do you feel invisible maybe? Do you feel maybe that you've been praying a prayer for so long and you're wondering, does God even hear me anymore? Does God care? Is he interested? I think the shepherd's story reminds us that the answer is a resounding yes. Today, in the town of David, today. Behold, I'm coming soon, we're told in Revelations. Could it happen today? Are we expecting it? You see, Advent is about waiting for December 25th. Sure it is. In my German tradition, it's the four weeks up to December 24th. But Advent also causes us to look past that to know that one day Messiah will come back again. He promised it. And it could happen today. It could. Maybe while we're on our night shift It could happen. In the quiet of the land, not forgotten of God. Let me just race through. When when the angel says to the shepherds, you will find him wrapped, I believe that is a command to go and find him. Go seek him. Right? And we're told that they left the sheep in the fields and they went. Now, I'm a kid's pastor. I always want to use my imagination going, so what? They just abandoned the sheep? After everything I said about these guys being good workmen, they just abandoned the sheep and took off. You don't, don't let your imagination go too far in that one. I don't think they were that irresponsible. I think they put them in charge of the youngest maybe. I don't know. Some of them said, we're going to go investigate. We're going to go find this child. We're going to go look for him. We're going to make sure that what the angel told us is actually going to be true. Those who had had the least status the smallest audience, and an inconsequential influence in Caesar's world 
were the first to hear of and behold the glory of God, and they become key players in the greatest shift in history. The angels came to the shepherds, people who are doing what they do every day and every night, people going through the routines of life, people living ordinary lives, and the angels come to them. And isn't that what the birth of Jesus is all about? It's about God meeting us not only on high holy days, but on ordinary days, in ordinary places, and in an extraordinary way. See, God can meet us here Sunday morning at church, but he can meet us Monday or Wednesday or Friday. God can meet us at any time, and we can go and investigate. The birth of this child is about God coming to us in everyday lives and saying to us, don't be afraid for, look, I proclaim to you good news. It's about God meeting us in our pain and our loneliness. It's about God meeting us in our frustration and in our anger. It's about God meeting us on Monday and a Wednesday and a Friday. It's about God wanting to be a part of our lives every day. Good news of great joy. Let us go and see. My prayer is that as you are traveling through Advent even this year, another day on the calendar, another year where we do the same old, same old, I pray that you will have taken the time to investigate like the shepherds did. Investigate that's more than just a cute story. It's not a cute story. It's the truth that can rock your life and cause us to celebrate. And behold the glory of God. What's the implication? I love this. Verse 16, chapter 2, verse 16. So they hurried off and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And then verse 17, when they'd seen them, they spread word and all that had been told about this child. Verse 18, those who heard it were amazed at what happened when the shepherds told them. Verse 20, the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God. What I like about this, I miss this a lot of times. They go see the baby, they behold, and then what do they do? They go back to work. They go back to the night shift. They go back to the 40. They don't become evangelists. They don't become preachers. They don't become counselors. They don't go to the Pharisees and scribes and say, Ha! I know something you don't know. We're going to take over. They just go back to life. They just resume life. And I love that part of the story. One commentator says this, and the shepherds returned, a beautiful example of their pious fidelity in their vocation. Their extraordinary experience does not withdraw them from their daily and ordinary duties, but enables them to perform them with increased gladness of heart. Doubtless that they will ever forget this night, the experience and the words of promise fulfilled. Their names unknown on earth are written in heaven, and their experience is the best example of the first beatitude in Matthew 5, verse 3. And all who heard it, all who heard what? All who heard the words of the shepherd were amazed at what they said. They weren't amazed at who they are. They're just ordinary, individual, blue-collar guys doing their work. But all who heard what they said, their words... Suddenly, these nameless guys became influencers in their world. Among whom? Their own families, 
their own shepherd peers. We don't hear of shepherds, you know, one-upping the Pharisees or the scribes or the teachers of the law. They're in their world doing their life to God's glory because of what they experienced. This whole drama, this whole unfolding drama is God's story. And God is the one who should be praised because of it. When the angels leave, the shepherds get up, they go to Bethlehem, they go and see with their own eyes, but then they, from go and see, it goes to went and told. They beheld, they investigated, and they took that truth back into their everyday lives and resumed life, though I believe different people. Good news of great joy. Receive it, treasure it, and then proclaim it. You see, I believe this at the end of the story. We are neither too significant or too insignificant too valuable or too inconsequential, an influencer or an invisible to receive the great news of the gospel, to treasure it, to investigate it, to proclaim it to all who will be near enough to hear. You see, the truth is, we are still waiting. And I want to challenge you with, as you wait, How do you wait? Behold, I'm coming soon. Ananias and Sapphira, I mean, Anna and and Simeon beheld. Mary and Joseph, they beheld. The shepherds, they beheld. One day we will behold the glory of God. Are you expecting it? Are you anticipating it? Even as we go about our normal workaday worlds, even like as the shepherds is, we go back to our night shift. Can we still allow the glory of God to envelop us in such a way so we can do as the shepherds did when we speak? People are amazed at what we say. I want to close with a quote out of a book um, written by Timothy Paul Jones. It's called The Prayers That Jesus Prayed. And part of his very first prayer that he talks about is the prayer that I mentioned today We believe that Jesus would have been taught that prayer as a child and that Jesus would have been praying prayer as a child. He closes this chapter with a meditation and I want to close with it today. So you can just follow with me in the PowerPoint if you would please because I'm going to focus on reading. But I just challenge you as we close in prayer, may this prayer become your prayer. It's called a meditation. Master, my eyes have seen your salvation. It doesn't make sense but it works. Yet sometimes I still catch myself expecting you to reveal yourself in ways that make sense to me, expecting you to save the people that I would save, expecting salvation to occur on my terms. I forget that it's your salvation, not mine. I have a hard time waiting for, watching for, longing for, your salvation, your revelation, your way of doing things. My plans make so much more sense, but they fall apart so quickly. Your plans take so long and seem so strange and so weak, but they last forever. 
Help me to watch and to wait for you. Amen.